From a wide range of embroidery classes to talks and special events, Royal School of Needlework's International Summer School offers so much. Immerse yourself in the world of the RSN with its world-renowned tuition and treat yourself to this Festival of Stitch in July and August 2024. The Royal School of Needlework is offering four ways to get involved this year. You can join the International Summer School on-site at Hampton Court Palace and at the Royal School of Needlework Durham in the UK, as well as Lexington, Kentucky in the United States of America. There are also online classes available live so students can join in anywhere from around the world. There's a wonderful variety of techniques to explore for those who are starting out on their hand embroidery journey all the way through to advanced stitches. So whether you want to follow a kit-based design, explore your own creativity using your own materials in a more contemporary way, or focus on developing your personal design skills, there will be a class that appeals to you. The Royal School of Needlework International Summer School classes will provide experienced stitchers with an opportunity to engage in a longer or more advanced project while allowing those newer to the world of hand embroidery to try a shorter course to build and develop their skills. The full list of classes and more information about the Royal School of Needlework International Summer School is available at royal-needlework.org.uk with special offers for booking multiple classes and an early bird booking price available until the 29th of February 2024. Whether you're planning on attending in person, online, or a combination of the two, this is a fantastic opportunity to improve your stitching skills from one of the best schools in the world. Welcome to Needle Exchange, conversations on the art of thread. Welcome to Needle Exchange, conversations on the art of thread. My name's Jamie, aka Mr. X Stitch, and in this episode we're talking to Jack Roberts, aka JPR Stitch. Jack's an academic, he's an abstract artist, and in this conversation we cover all kinds of topics, including letting your creative path flow, how Jack learned all the rules so that he could ignore all the rules, what is art anyway? and all kinds of topics in between. It's a great chat with a man whose work is absolutely beautiful. Enjoy the show. Why don't we go with how you have come to be JPR Stitches? Because I dived back through your Instagram and you just kind of came out and you were like, hi, I do stitching. So my research kind of stopped at that point and I didn't dive a lot further back. So please enlighten me with your backstory. It took quite a while for me to, I think, to to have the confidence to share my art. So I've been making art for years and years in certain different different styles. So it, it's, it's machine embroidery has been a kind of a, a, a thread that's gone through everything, but it's not been a... That's not been my main thing. I've done kind of painting, drawing, printmaking, all sorts of different things. But my art was very much in the background of other stuff. So I've always been involved in the art world in some way, whether it's through studying or working or um, different aspect. But my art was always kind of background and it was more of a hobby than actually my main thing. And then, like with a lot of people, the pandemic was a point of 
reflection and I decided that I wanted my art to be my focus a bit more. So I, I stopped a lot of the things I was doing. I kind of took a little bit of a break and decided I was going to be an artist and I, my, my focus was going to be creating art. I did, at that point, I got no idea what I was going to make or what medium I was going to use. It was just that's what I was going to make. I was going to make art. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and whenever I'd made art in the past, I never shared it. So I used to make art and it would just go into my plan chest and no one would ever see it other than me. So it was, it was a strange, it was, which is a strange thing. It, I don't think sh- sharing your art isn't, isn't particularly a motivator, but nobody seeing your art is definitely a demotivator. The fact that you know, if you <laughs> just make it, no one ever sees it. It's kind of, it feels a little bit of a strange process and I think it really began to demotivate me from making so then I'd have months where I wasn't making at all so that's why social media kind of just started because it was like if I'm gonna make art I need to actually share my art because otherwise this will just fizzle out and I'll I'll lose my lose the energy so it's kind of turned into a really long-winded answer um, no, it's all right. But when when I, I, I had about a three month period where I was mulling over what I wanted to make, and I'd gone through so many different options from painting signs relating to pubs to painting landscapes. I decided because it was this time of year I was thinking of, and I really like the heavy shadows that you get in the kind of summer with bright sun, heavy shadows. And I was going to paint the rural landscape where I lived in a kind of constable style and it was going to be oil paintings and they were going to be massive and I bought loads of oil paint uh, oil paint and canvases and really expensive brushes and then never painted anything and it kind of fizzled out a bit and I remember walking part of the southwest coast path with my dad and cousin uh, and it was it was hard going and we I just remember kind of drifting off in my mind and thinking, why on earth are you thinking of painting? Just so that's what you enjoy doing, that's what you're best at, just sit at the sewing machine and sew. And that's really where it all started. So when I got back from that trip, I started sewing. I picked a thread, cut some fabric, started sewing, and just kept sewing on that piece until the fabric was full. And I swapped colours halfway through, and that's really where it all started from, the f- trying to not think about what it, what, it, what I wanted to do too much. I was kind of stuck in analysis paralysis, and I'd just become utterly paralysed creatively, and I had spent three months not making anything. And as soon as I stopped thinking and just started sewing, stuff actually started happening. And then when I started making, more ideas started flowing, different ways of displaying them started kind of coming to me so that's where it all came from and I did a couple of months of making before I then actually thought right I need to do something with it which is when I then started the Instagram account so you just sat down at a sewing machine and just went that was that's it it's gonna go for that yeah now it, it sounds it sounds like it did it, it's I, I'm a very competent sewer I've done huge amounts of embroidery uh, machine embroidery in the past I've taught embroidery courses so I know the process extremely well so it's kind of by me just sitting down I wasn't bothered by needles breaking threads snapping the machine getting clogged that's just part of the process so I could just kind of 
focus on just sewing and, and being in the moment and creating. Um, so it's, it's, it was playing on a strength, creative strength of mine. Have you ever seen Get Back, the eight-hour marathon of the Beatles producing their final album? No. Peter Jackson thing where there was an existing documentary and then Peter Jackson kind of took it, colorized it, re-edited it, put it all together, turned it into this eight-hour thing. It's brilliant. It's like hanging out with the Beatles as they made their last album. But there's a bit in that which people talk about a lot, which is basically where they needed some more songs. And Paul McCartney just sits there and starts going... And then he goes, kind of goes, and then he's like, hmm. And and literally, like you watch him within about two and a half minutes, start to pull this song out that becomes Get Back. And to us, it's like a classic song that we've always heard. But to see that creativity, it just literally going, just coming out, and it starts making noises that then start to become words that kind of feel right and stuff. And I guess that's what you're saying. You kind of did just then. Yeah, and and I think I think I, I was in a. I, because I'd, I'd come out of my PhD, which is a very intensive process, which makes part of the academic process is you overthink everything and you've got to overthink everything that you're reading and writing and write it again and again and again until it's absolutely perfect. And then when it's perfect, it's still not right and you rewrite it again. So I think I was kind of stuck in that mental loop of it's got to be right and think about it and it's all got to be planned and, and you've got to get it justified and every piece of art's got to have a, an associated 2,000 word essay to go with it to justify how it sits into art history and all of that rubbish and I, and it was stopping me making and I think by just kind of letting go of all of that and just saying I don't need any of that explanation or justification to allow myself to make and just actually started creating I actually allowed, I was able to create. Because one of the things I think that's interesting about your work is it's so abstract that if you just present it, it's up to people to work out what it's about. Like, I don't think you really offer much of a narrative, do you? No, and I kind of do that on purpose. Um, I often see things in my art, but I don't often say what I can see because then I think that people begin to look for that it's like when you're looking at clouds and things like that or people see different things and I don't really want to um say that it is because it, it, I'm never I'm never creating something to look like a, an object but sometimes when you look at it in a certain orientation something emerges um but I rarely say that because I don't want to to push people down that direction that they're looking for that thing but interestingly when I started to start my website to to sell the pieces I put when when people were buying them I said do which which orientation do you want them in it's because it's it for me it's, it is utterly subjective and they can go in any way you can have them upside down and and the interesting thing that no one's ever asked for it in a different way than I've already mounted it which I think is perhaps that they are happy with my choice but I think that's it's an interesting one that I thought people would perhaps want to take it on themselves to to to, to um, find find the position that suits them um, rather than the position that suited me if that makes sense like they take a nod from you because you've put yeah. it that way in the first place and that gives them yeah, permission so. yeah like if you if they'd have found them on a pile on the floor 
and then they'd have to work it out for themselves. And I guess that's it'd the be something different. Bit, yeah, it? yeah, absolutely. And I do switch them around. Do you think so they worry that they would upset you? Well, I, I, I don't like mind going... at all, to be honest. I, I, I don't mind whichever way. There's, there's some pieces that I think have a certain look better in certain orientations than others. But I, I think certainly when you combine more than one piece and have two or three together, switching them around changes the, the feel of the group massively. How would you describe your work then? Imagine that this is an audio podcast and people can't see it. How would you describe it? It's, it's created from a very dense web of stitching. So I only ever use an, uh, a zigzag stitch and I pick one colour and I'll stitch exceedingly detailed into the fabric until there's no base fabric left at all. But halfway through, I'll switch to another thread and fill the fabric. Usually there's a line that separates the two colours, which is quite a, a sharp and distinct line. Um, and for me, there's so there's usually just two colours, sometimes three. But they're, they're, they're always, they always need to feel balanced to me. So they're, they're abstract, they're shapes, they're colours, but an important thing is that there's balance within them. So even if there's just a small area of, of one colour and a large area of another, they need to feel, um, relationally, they need to feel um, that they're working together and not fighting each other. That's a bit of a... When I was looking back at... No, 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 that's yeah. great. It's a bit, a bit of a fluffy way to describe it, but anyway. <laughs> but you're the, only, you're the best place person to articulate it. So I guess half of the skill... From someone who has, as you just said, you write essays, you edit them, you write them, you edit them, you get them so that every semantic point is made perfectly. And then you create things that to many people will just be free flowing color spaces. Mm -hmm. Then to be able to narrow that down in a way, that's a different kind of skill in and of itself. Yeah, and I think that that reflective process has been quite um, difficult for me because when I'm at, when I'm sewing, I'm not thinking about what I'm creating and I'm not thinking about um, the. Well, I am thinking about what I'm creating, but I'm not thinking about the 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 justification, the meaning. The, the the I'm much more enjoying the experience and then the art is coming out of that experience. But then to be able to talk about the art, there needs that kind of reflection on well, what is it about? Why why does the art come out of that experience? What is it about the colours and the relationship to colours? Why do some pieces, I keep working them because they're, they don't feel there yet, because they're not balanced, they're, not, um, they're, not, they're, they're just not feeling quite right for me. And trying to then understand that to be able to articulate it, it's, it's been a bit of a strange process because it, it is then adding that thinking mind back into the art. Hmm. I think like it sounds like a lot of your time is spent focusing on the craft, yeah. the production, and then the art just is, I guess it's like whoever it was, who was like, was it Michelangelo or whatever? He's like, there's a statue in that block mm. of marble. I've just got to bang it out. Yeah. I suppose it's the same philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. And then when it's done, actually being able to reflect on it is, is I still think that, I think it's part of the process. And I don't think it's quite finished until I have reflected on it. And then, the, but I think there are a number of tools that I've built into my practice which help me to reflect. So, printmaking has become quite a reflective process. Instagram is a reflective process because I'm making videos about the art. I'm 
writing about the art, I'm hearing what other people are saying about the art, so I'm I'm revisiting and reflecting on it. So I think that those those added parts of my practice help me understand the core aspect of my art, this embroidery. Because that's interesting then, because one of the observations I made a while ago uh, was that your videos are carefully produced. So although you do a lot of reels, when you look at them, you look at the way you shoot them, you look at the way you edit them, it's a separate like art form that you're creating. So it's interesting that it has become like part of the wider practice. Yeah, absolutely. So I started Instagram as a way to disseminate my art, to share it with people um, in a free way, to be honest. Um, and that's that's where it started. And then it kind of turned into a daily diary where I was documenting my process. But I feel like now it's, although it's still a diary and it does kind of document what I'm doing on a daily basis, it's much more creating a part of, it is a part of my art. It's almost like a, a video art that is, hmm. it's another way that people can experience my art. So it is it is in itself part of the whole wider practice. And I think that's interesting because I think that the way the algorithm changes in, you know, say five years ago, video content wasn't the same that it is now. I mean, you've got over 50,000 followers on mm-hmm. there. You've been able to use the traction that I think Instagram gives to videos and reels yeah and obviously that's had a, a successful impact on your growth but some people you know like like I can't be bothered so mm. I don't try and follow whatever TikTok memes and all those sorts of things mm. I don't it's to me it's a bolt on mm. and what I admire about the way you've done it is it almost feels like you're as you're making the piece you're making the video yeah like the two it, things are like running in yeah common. it doesn't it doesn't feel like a chore at all uh, it doesn't feel hard work it feels very natural. It feels more unnatural to create a piece of art without documenting the process. So I'm, and and I've got to the stage now where I'm filming and videoing or photographing most of the process as I'm doing it from different angles. And that's just part of what I'm doing without really thinking. So I feel like I could make about 20 reels a day from what I've actually done because I've got so much video content so it's not about creating enough content just for one reel it's almost me documenting my process and then I'll have 50 60 three or four second videos from that day of shooting of sewing Mm. and then I'm revisiting that reflecting on it editing that down and just picking maybe one two or three of those short pieces to to kind of share in my social media diary so it's 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 part of the prep me me documenting what i'm doing is part of a part of my practice yeah have you got any uh pro tips imagine i did decide i wanted to get into making instagram reels you got any uh tips you got any good tools you got any good hacks i think i think the biggest thing is try not to think too much about it um the what the videos that um you overthink you spend hours editing, flicking through music to try and find the right piece of music never really seemed to feel quite right. The ones that are just a bit more thrown together and a bit more natural um, work a lot better. On a practical note, cleaning your phone camera um, so it doesn't have a greasy thumbprint over the over the lens is, is always a good tip and making sure it's, it's lit really well. Um, things like that always always work quite well yeah 
it's, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's very, it's very much just part of what I do now. It's, it's. Um, I, I think, I think if I stopped sharing my art and video in my art, I'd feel like a part of my practice had um, died almost. Yeah, and then, and then you also pivot with a bit of print as well. I do can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, so. I enjoy printmaking and I've always enjoyed printmaking. Um, and when I was um, creating my pieces last year, I was finding that I was getting a number of inquiries from people and they the price point of my stitchings was a bit more than they could afford. So they were looking, oh, have you got anything cheaper? So that was kind of where the idea came from. But it then changed into something totally different that... I could have just photographed a stitching, had that printed off on some nice paper and signed it, which is what a lot of artists do, and they're very successful and popular with that. For me, that felt a little bit too uh, doing it for commercial reasons rather than making an art form out of it. So I wanted to, to create a piece of art. I wanted to create the print as a piece of art, so I, it was made by my hands. So I bought a printing press and started experimenting with different ways of working. I had a go at trying to replicate the stitch pattern in lino. I did it as a dry point etching. I tried some um, woodblock prints, tried it screen printing, and none of them, they created quite nice textures and patterns, but none of them really felt authentic to what I was trying to produce. I wanted to replicate my stitching as a print. So then I actually decided to ink up an, a, an old stitching that I'd got so I got the actual stitching and rolled some ink over it and then put that through the printing press and that worked so well it took a little bit of um once I found that it took a bit of experimenting to work out how to harden the fabric and the stitch so that it was durable to be able to create a run of prints and so that the fabric didn't get clogged but I they've they've almost become a reflective tool where I'm I'm revisiting the stitchings to find out what's important about them so the first ones the first prints i did i used color um and then the second ones i didn't use color in the prints and i just did a blind embossing so they were totally white and it just picked up the texture and they felt so much much more important because it was almost i i, I see them as almost a fingerprint or a footprint on the sand, that kind of memory of the print. So it's not transferring the colour, it's almost transferring its essence into the paper. So they, yeah, they've, exactly. yeah, so it's, 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 it started as a way of adding a different product line, to be honest, in, in quite a blunt way, but then it's turned into not that at all and it's just a totally different aspect of my practice which allows me to do something different so i'm not i'm not sitting at the sewing machine and sewing but i'm working with the, the stitchings and i'm trying to work out how to translate the stitchings into a paper-based piece and then it's looking at what's important is this color important is the two areas um, of the one area of, of stitch and one area not stitch is that important is it the texture is the border important so it, it's it's changed it's changed the process because I'm now much more able it's almost me analyzing my stitchings to find out what actually is important about it and I, I when I first started I thought color was really important 
I think colour is less important now. Um, I think colour is, it makes them vibrant pieces, but I think for me it's the texture and the web of stitch and the, 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 the layering of one area next to the other, which is much more um, what my art is about. And when you create these imprints in, these pieces that are the reflections of the stitches, are you able to discern the two different areas? Or is that part of the evolution? Say, it's not it's not easy and that's that's been part of the process because I did I did the the first the first print run I did was two colours. So that um was easy to see with the two areas because one one area was um red and one area was yellow so it was easy to see but there was that texture of the, the stitch running running through both areas when I took the color away you you kind of lost the two areas um, and it just became a print of plain stitch running through the piece which lost part of the it, it wasn't as as an interesting piece of art as it would be with two areas so then I've I've played around with different different processes and I found that if I stitch half of the fabric and leave half of the fabric unstitched the unstitched area of the fabric will still emboss onto the paper um, and it creates that two-tone um, style within the print. Because I was thinking about when I looked at your early Instagram pieces that you shared a lot of them, for want of a word, seem quite frondy. <laughs> you know, like mm. your shapes, they were like sort of leaf forms and quite narrow. And it feels like over time, your pieces have become simpler, but bolder and the shapes have become bigger. And I was wondering about that evolution. But then from what you're saying now about this other implication of it, maybe it's a nod in that direction because you're trying to make the language simpler so the language works in different means. Yeah, and I think I think it's very much my mood as well when I'm sewing. I feel like when, when I sew, the shapes and patterns that come out reflect the experience that I'm feeling. So if I'm feeling a bit more stressed and anxious, they go a bit more um, all over the place and a bit more lumpy and the, the lines are less smooth, whereas if I'm a very calm and very at ease, they become very, very freeform and um, quite simple shapes. And I wonder whether the, the, the evolution is almost me becoming a bit more at ease with my practice as an artist, that when I was starting, I was a bit unsure of what I was doing and it was didn't feel quite natural, but I was keeping going. So they were a bit more all over the place and a bit more wiggly whereas whereas as I'm becoming a bit more comfortable with what I'm doing they're becoming a bit more a bit smoother um and then so I'm, I'm doing I've been working on some series a series at the minute where I'm using thread that's running out and they're becoming a bit more wobbly again the the, the lines are all over mm. the place and I wonder again is that because I'm not so comfortable with the process because I'm less in control of when the thread will run out so before I would just keep sewing and I would have so much thread that I would never run out whereas with these ones it runs out when it runs out and then I haven't really got any more of that color to to infill that area with is that like when your mobile phone's on 10 yeah I just like a little bit of anxiety uh, <laughs> kind of in the process that's an interesting thing tension to put into the work though isn't it because like you say it's almost like at the start 
you're proving a point. And it's almost like when someone's doing a performance where they're going to do the same thing over and over again, I'm sure when they first are, they're really in the the role, Mm. really like this. And then after a while, they find their pattern within it. And I guess that's what you're speaking to. So now you're throwing your own obstacles. Yeah, to see what that does, because I think I don't I don't want to be in a position where I'm just churning out the same thing day in, day out. I've got a set process and a set style. Um, and I like working within those parameters. Uh, but then within that, I think it's good to to kind of just follow the process. And this new series that I'm working on at the minute came out of me thinking I'd got two threads, two, two reels of thread that were the same colour. When I'd finished with one, I got the other one and then realised it was a slightly different shade. So it was kind of left in that almost awkward moment then of, well, what do I do? Do I sew it in that slightly different shade of yellow or do I do something totally different but because I'd only half filled the area I I could the the options were either throw the piece away don't use it or do something totally different with it and I think because I've become a bit more comfortable with with my art and my practice I felt that I could just kind of experiment with it whereas I think if that had have happened at the beginning of me starting I would have just put that in a box that would and it would uh, never have come back out i want to spin back to when jack was a lad <laughs> because the thing is is we've over the conversation like we've talked about you being an artist but you casually dropped in that you've done a phd and you gradually dropped in that you've pretty much tried every artistic medium under the sun so i want to find out a bit more about that because i think it's really interesting you know it, i want to find out about later on about you being an artist and how that works as a living but it'll be interesting to find out how you came to be that guy in the first place so can you tell me a bit more yeah so I think as a teenager I found being creative quite uncomfortable um, and I never really got on with it I enjoyed the idea of art but I didn't particularly enjoy the idea of making and I felt that a bit uneasy I went, then went to college and started doing uh, and, and focused on art a lot more. And I was... Have you got a particularly artistic family? Or no, anything? not at all. No, 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 no one in my... I mean, they're, they're all creative in different ways. So my, my grandfather on my dad's side was a, a kind of a painter and decorator, but more than painter and decorator, he was kind of doing um, marble work and um, graining on a particular... So it was kind of a, more of a craft than, than just painting and decorating. And then my 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 mom and my nan are very much um, crafters, enjoy knitting, crochet, cross stitch, things like that. But it's much more a pastime, a hobby, rather than a um, rather than a art form. So that's where it all kind of started. But then when I went to college, I focused on art, and I didn't know whether I preferred textiles or photography. I went down the photography route and that was much more my thing. And I had years where I wasn't making anything with textiles, but then decided that actually I preferred the, rather than making art, the other stuff around the art world. So the process of how exhibitions were put together, um, the educational side of it, the understanding of why art is valued why art is important why people make art and buy art and 
because it's it's a strange thing. The whole thing is a bit emperor's new clothes. Why on earth do people buy art because it's utterly useless? Why do people <laughs> spend hours making these things? But then there's the passion that people feel, both artists, collectors, dealers, galleries, is is enormous. And and then that the, the, it's that that is the remnants in culture. When you look back hundreds of years, it's the art that that almost paints a picture of the that past time. So that, that was where my interest was more than creating at that time. So I did a, a master's in arts and museum management. And at the time I was also, so I've had a portfolio career in the art world for the last 10, 15 years. And I've done things from running workshops in um, creative arts, community arts, writing grants for different art organisations, writing grants for myself, um, lecturing at universities, lecturing at conferences on the art market. I operated as a, um, an art dealer and still do. Um, so there's, there's lots of things that go on aside from it. So I'm very much involved in the art world. Whenever I go on holiday, it's focused around an art event. So even though I wasn't creating an too much and that that my art wasn't my focus for a long time art was a massive driver in my life in many other ways both as a way of earning money and then as a way of um just enjoying myself i was fascinated by because i think we talked about this previously about yeah your masters and the approach you took towards curation and why people do it have you got what is your take on it let's do that let's go <laughs> what's your take on art and why from an artist's point of view and i have this very much myself there's a creative urge and i i i think the easiest way to describe it i've never been an addict in any way but i think the it's it's how i would expect an addict to talk about their addiction that there's this this compulsion that builds inside you you feel unsatisfied when you're not creating when you create you feel absolutely satisfied and fulfilled you've had your fix but then after you finish that fix kind of diminishes and then you need another fix so I think there's that definitely almost from a creative point of view for both me, myself, and for a lot of artists, there is that compulsion, that that feeling of needing to make something. Why then people buy art is a totally different reason. I don't think there's that. There's, it's not that compulsion to make. It's almost a compulsion to collect and a compulsion to own. And I think a lot of it came from um, where museums were born out of the kind of cabinet of curiosities with rich people traveling the world and getting all of these objects to share with with friends and 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 with with people to almost show that they were the learned man and they knew more about things than others and it, it became this 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 structure by where where people could um express themselves in a different way and i think that's that's where it's come to now that a lot of people buy art because they, um, they it, it's, a, it's an expression of themselves. So it's, it's almost like people having tattoos. They're, they're expressing themselves in a visual way. 
So tattoo is doing it on your own skin. Buying a piece of art is doing it on your walls at home. So it's that. It's 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 a reflection of you as a person. Obviously, in some markets, investment does come into that, but not in most artists' experience. Yeah, interesting. Um, Stand-up comedians do it because they have to, mm. I think. A lot of those, because of the amount of grind you've got to go through to become a successful stand-up comedian, it feels to me like the really successful ones would be incapable of doing anything else. You're know, like Jim yeah. Carrey. Jim Carrey couldn't have been a bank clerk if no. he'd wanted to because he would have been like the goofiest bank clerk in town. And I think that's interesting. And then I was reflecting on the conversation that I had with Kath yeah. Jaynes about her anatomical embroidery. And most of the people that buy her work are medical yeah. professionals. And that speaks to what you just said there about how people label themselves through yeah. their art. They're like, I think about the stuff that me and Mary collect. Sometimes it's, you know, posters of concerts that we've been to. It's other bits and pieces that reflect. They're, they're like symbols of ourselves yeah, no, that we put out there. A lot of people will buy art when they're on holiday and, and it might not be a painting of the place they went on holiday, but that piece of art on the wall reminds them of that nice experience. Yeah, and perhaps their art is being a brain surgeon yeah. or being a lollipop lady. Like, I think everybody's got an art. It, they just got to find it, whether it's mowing the lawn or painting. Yeah, absolutely. Stuff. Yeah, and I think I think that, that you can find that kind of creative outlet in a lot of ways. Um, and I think for a long time, I, I my creative urges were probably fulfilled by teaching other people how to become creative. Um, in that way that so even even teaching art is I think in itself a creative practice mm. yeah is it important do you think for people to learn the practice I was thinking in some ways about like the way that you do things like f focusing on the craft of production and letting the art come out to me feels almost like it's a naive art because I know a few people who do that, like they make stuff and they're not bothered really about what it looks like. It's just about letting the process yeah. happen. And I feel like that is, I might be using the wrong terms because I'm ignorant, but it feels like naive art is quite a good way of doing it because you're not getting too hamstrung by the overarching context and stuff. But do you think that context is important? Yeah, I think I think for me, I, I think I've got had to go through, I've had to become an expert in the art world and the processes of art and art history and the art market to almost give myself permission to make art, if that makes sense. I, I think there are a lot of people who can just make art with no formal training and no experience, and the art can be fantastic. For me, I don't feel like I could give myself, I ever really was able to give myself permission to do that because... I couldn't explain it. I couldn't justify it. I hadn't got any ability to place it into a, narr a wider narrative. So I think I've created. I've spent ten, fifteen years educating myself and experiencing the art world to then to then get to a position where I feel comfortable with the simplicity of my own art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that was one of the things that maybe I said to you the first time we spoke over email was I think that your art's simplicity is really brave because it, it offers up like everything and nothing at the same time yeah. to people. So people have to draw their own conclusions from it. You're not giving people a steer. And at the same time, how you decide when a piece is done, like 
nobody else can tell you when that is really and that's like that's quite a bold yeah and I, th- I think there's there's different things so the way i frame my art is different they're 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 the, the stitchings are stretched onto a piece of plywood. That piece of plywood is then float mounted onto a larger piece of plywood that is stained black. So there's no glass, there's no frame. I experimented with so many different ways of displaying my art, but that was the one I kept coming back to that felt just right. And I think the fact that I'd had so much experience in the art world, I'd seen so much art that I've researched into a lot of artists I actually felt confident in my own decision-making that if that feels right, that is the right thing for it. Whereas I think if I'd have just come at it without that experience, I would have put it in a frame, in glass, because that's what you do with a piece of art. And I, I think mm. that, it, it, that that education, both formal and soft education, has given me the confidence to be able to... Um, well, the, the confidence in my own art... Yeah. Surety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you when you're doing a series? So cuz like cuz you make your pieces as yeah. they come, but then when you're doing a series, what's the difference there because you're making a series of pieces, so I guess they don't come quite as No, they don't they there's a bit more planning involved. So when when I'm doing a series which is usually bringing 9 to 12 stitchings together to create a piece that's with a design that flows through all of them. Usually the design comes out of an individual artwork that I've done that was much more um, organic, but I feel like there's more to explore with that idea. Some pieces I I finish and I feel like the idea has been the pieces finished, other pieces I finish and I feel like I I need to do more more on it. So the collection pieces come out of those, those artworks where I feel like there's more to talk about and more to describe. Because then there needs to be a flowing design that, that moves through the, the, the collection, there does need to be more planning involved. So they become less organic, but the organic stage is in the previous artwork, if that makes sense. Hmm. And then one of the things that I admire is that you do it all in the garden. <laughs> I do. I don't really know where it started from, to be honest. Um, I... So outside a lot now. When I first did it, I think it was almost sitting inside, longing to be outside, thinking, looking out of the window, thinking, "Oh, it's a lovely day," but I'm sat in here on the sewing machine. So that I think that's where it came from—that wanting to be outside. But oh, I can't take my sewing machine outside because you don't sew outside with a sewing machine. So I think that's where it came from, and then it's turned into that's just almost my summer studio I know when I was first doing it I was a bit anxious of the noise I was creating with the rattle of the sewing machine but now I'm just kind of totally in the moment and sewing and I enjoy I much more enjoy sewing outside I think it's a I feel very calm when I make my art and when I'm in the garden with birds singing and the plants around me, it just kind of intensifies that calming experience. Yeah, are you able to look at your work and see where it's been done inside and outside? Not particularly inside and outside. I can look at my work and guess what time of year it was made, mainly through the colours. I think that my colours become a lot more muted in the winter um, or reflect colours that emerge in the winter. So 
I've got a fire at home, so it's much more reds and oranges. Whereas in the summer, I think they're much more natural colours. So they're they're the, the the greens, the blues of the sky, the the colours of plants. So I think not not particularly whether I've done them inside or outside, but certainly when I did them. And has that got anything to do with the reason why you rarely do a straight line? Because <laughs> I think I think you did a piece for it the is. coronation had some straight lines in it. You're like, oh, this it is, is it is. I I, just, I think. I find it easier and more natural to sew a curved line um, when I'm sewing. I think a straight line is quite hard because I'm using a free motion foot and the feed dog on the sewing machine is dropped, So, which is what kind of keeps the sewing machine w- working in a straight line. So the straight line is then up to me in my hand. So actually creating a straight line becomes harder. And when you're looking at a piece, if it's not quite straight, it doesn't look right. Whereas if it's a purposeful curve, it does look right. So I think curves are easier and more natural for me to create. I think that's why rivers yeah, do probably. curves as well. Yeah, it's that. It's, it's much more, it feels more organic. Yeah, yeah. So you do a lot of your work outside in the garden. I'm guessing then you do a lot of your work in silence? Yeah. Or do you have background music and stuff? When I, when I sew outside, I never listen to music. When I sew inside, I always listen to something, usually music. I've tried audiobooks and podcasts, but I find that my mind is torn between focusing on the podcast or the audiobook or the sewing, whereas actually if it's music, I can just leave that to just drift in the background and I'm not really concentrating on it. Um, and it needs to be really loud as well because to get over the noise. Yeah, the so, so what kind of music... Cause... Because you might be like, oh, I really like a bit of Slayer to do, but I don't feel like that would be the kind of music. But what kind of music anything, do you listen to then? Anything and everything, to be honest. I I don't really have a genre that I listen to. I'll, I listen to ev- anything and everything. I, I used to like Bob Marley was probably a big thing that I listened to. I listen to a lot of classical music. I've just started a new project where I'm working my way through the... Uh, Rolling Stone magazine's top 500 albums, listening to each of them in order to, and I'm not, my my rules for the project is I'm listening to them in reverse order. I can't skip an album and I can't skip a song. So I've got to listen to them in the way the artist created them. So, so then that's exceedingly uh... eclectic that, that, that I can go from something that's, I don't know, muddy waters and then you're into the Beatles to you know, to, to some Latin American music. It's it's it it's an illuminating process. I was gonna say, have you got any uh, albums that nobody ever thought would be brilliant that you've discovered? No, yeah, I've got a lot that were I don't know how they've made it into the top five hundred, to be honest, but <laughs> I think I no I I again I don't I I I think favorite because I we you've got some questions for later I know about favorite things mm. yeah, um yeah. and I find that really difficult because I don't think I have a favorite thing I think there's a right piece for the right moment and there's a right album for the mm. right moment and the album for now isn't particularly going to suit me this afternoon or tomorrow but the album for tomorrow will be the right one for that moment, if that makes sense. Right. So Yeah, yeah. So to segue into that then, so, we, so no pressure. Why don't we go like favourite 
five albums. So you don't feel like you've got to nail it down to one, but let's just pick some ones that, that you really I don't think like. I've got a favourite album, but I've got albums that I keep coming back to and listen in different situations. So um, I think anything by an Audi classical, Italian classical, I probably pronounced his name wrong, a composer I absolutely love. Um, I really enjoy... Kate Bush, Kick Inside is just brilliant. Moby, Play is a great one. I've got a CD by Joss Stone, which is probably utter rubbish, but because I've got the CD of it, I probably listened to it 100 times because I just put it on the CD player. So there's all sorts of different things. One of the ones I'm listening to a lot of them in it is Little Fictions by Albo. Um, I quite like Albo, and mm-hmm. that, that album particularly, I just think it's a really nicely composed album. Um, I also listen to a lot of playlists that these like Amazon Music and Spotify just thrust yeah. at you. So, and I, uh, yeah. I'm not sponsored by Mixcloud, but I mentioned <laughs> this to Kath as well. Like, I listen to a lot of Mixcloud because, in some ways, that's other people making mixes and you can kind of like nail it down by genres. Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed because I'm listening to a lot of these 500 albums on, um, I, I use. Amazon Music. Um, the suggestions that Amazon Music are now giving me has become much more broadened and far more interesting than what they were sharing before. So it's uh, yeah, it's really changed, really changed what um, what I'm listening to, which I really like. I think I th- I I really enjoy an album, and I think that's what I've missed when I've been listening to to podcast, no, not podcast, playlists that you just jump from song to song and it's not really an album. And I think that uh, for me, when as a creative, you're, you're, you're creating a piece that works together in the way that you created it. And I think a lot of artists, musicians used to do that as well, where the album was a piece of art to be listened to in a certain order. And I think you've lost, well, a lot of that's mm. been lost in how we consume music now so which is part of the process of trying to go back to listen to albums in the order that they've been created um so i i yeah sorry that didn't really answer your question no 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 i can dig it i can dig it because i've got a record player yeah it kind of forces your hand in the same way you know and i like that there's albums that i've like the other day I was listening to the carpenters best of yeah. which is not something I freely admit but at the same time because I've got two daughters and I started singing why do birds suddenly appear <laughs> to them it's quite good to like put that on but then actually I was listening to them and I was going do you know what they're not bad and when you listen to their greatest hits it's like like I'm a big fan of ABBA yeah. because I think that their songwriting's solid and you know if you get the right album by them and and, and again I think I've got quite a few Beatles albums mm. and you just put them on and you play them in your entirety. You're quite right. It's the right way to do it. Dipping in and out somehow doesn't quite do it justice. No, no, it doesn't. And I, I yeah, it's, it's a, we've, we've embarked on a totally different way of consuming music, haven't we? And I think it's, uh, there's something nice about just picking an album and committing to that album for 45 minutes, half an hour, an hour, however long the album is. And that's what you're listening to in the order that it was produced. And that's your, you're in that you're in the artist's hands for, for that amount of time. I'm going to do a shout out to my wife who I know won't be listening to this, <laughs> who for a long time had Madonna's immaculate collection. <laughs> 
but, but never realised it was a compilation. Just thought somehow Madonna had smashed the ball out of <laughs> the park with every single song there. Uh, that constantly amuses me when I bring that up. So, uh, all right then, uh, favourite film? Uh, honestly, I have not got a favourite film at all. I rarely watch a film more than once. I'm happy to watch any films. Don't like horror films at all. Um, I much rather a nice film than a not so nice film. Um, mm. The only, I think the only. What was the last good film you watched? Uh, I watched The Whale recently. That was quite a um, emotional, hard watch, but I think it was it was it was quite a good watch. Um, mm-hmm. Again, don't think I'd ever watch it again, but I enjoyed mm-hmm. I enjoyed watching it then. Yeah, I think the only film I've ever watched over and over and over and over is uh, probably The Lion King when I was a child. That was kind of like, okay. well, I think everyone has a favourite Disney film from when they were children or a Disney film from the, that they watched over and over. But I probably haven't watched it for 20 years or something. Um, yeah. So, well, I, yeah, I don't really have a... I enjoy watching films. I'm much rather a film than a series, but anything, whatever's going, is, is good with me. Do you feel inclined that it's if you're going to go and watch a film, it's good to go and see it at the cinema? Give it your rule. I hate going I to the like cinema. That, you're that kind of guy. I absolutely you hate don't. going to the cinema. I just find... <laughs> I think it's a similar thing. I, I hate creating art around other people. So I've, I had a studio for a while and I, I didn't like it at all. I, whenever I was at university, I never created art at university. I always created it at home. I think when I'm consuming things like that, I much prefer being in my own space with nobody else there. I just find the the process. If I was in a cinema and there was no one else in there, I'd be quite happy. Mm. But the fact that there's other people around, I just don't seem to enjoy it as much. Interesting, interesting. Uh, a good film that I was surprised with is called After Sun, which is about a girl who is remembering going on holiday with her dad, and she's about eleven. Mm. Um, Paul Mescal's in it. It's really poignant. Like it's really well done. It's kind of. I couldn't tell you the name of the director without looking it mm. up, um, but it's a pretty recent film, female director, and yeah, really one of those ones that sticks with you afterwards, yeah. you know, for a while, and I think that's always good. So I'll give you that as a recommendation. Thank you very much. Um, and then, favourite book? Again, I don't really read much. I find reading a chore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm dyslexic, um, so I don't really get a lot of joy out of reading. Um, I've never really read fiction. Um, when I did my PhD, I had to read a huge amount, um, which I think, again, made me fall out of love with reading. Whenever I do read, it's something about the art world and more a book that makes you think or a book that wide broadens your horizons somehow. So I can't say they're my favourite books and they're never really good books to read. They're just because they're quite hard works, but things like um, Pierre Bourgeois art world it's horrifically hard to read very deep I've probably read it six seven times and I still don't think I quite understand what on earth he's on about but I think it, it just makes you think in a different way and it just deepens your thoughts so I think those would probably be the books that I would read but they're not <laughs> I don't think they're a book that you could call an enjoyable read or a favorite read not going to read it on the beach. No, definitely not. No. <laughs> Catherine Cookson, it is not. Definitely Interesting. not. Interesting. Yeah, I, I run the risk of, I tend to go with two modes. I either seem to read business books or I read comic books. Yes. And I rarely find a piece of fiction that I really enjoy. It's hard to know where to look as well, you know. I suppose Amazon isn't bad in that way. But, yeah, in, in some ways I feel like there comes a point when you can be quite happy mm. 
and I don't feel like I'm missing out by not reading fiction because yeah. I read some really good comic books. Instead. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a second ago that you were dyslexic. I am. Which is a fact that hasn't come up at all. And then it's very interesting when you place it in the context of when we've been talking about visual language and the modes with which you use to communicate. Mm -hmm. That you sidestep anything that is kind of literal, I guess. Is, is that like a conscious thing or is that just something that's happened along the way? No, it's just something that's happened along the way. I, I think I've, I struggled with my dyslexia when I was younger. Um, but then I found ways of managing it. Um, so it's less of a problem for me now. Um, so when I say I read a book, I don't actually read it. I'll listen to the audio book of it. Um, and if there isn't an audio book of it, I'll cut the spine off a book, scan it in through a fast scanner that I've got and convert it into an audio book. So I, okay. I find ways around, around, um, the, the, the dyslexia that, that suit me and um, it doesn't really become a problem. However, it probably is part of a way of thinking or a way of working that suits my my creativity, perhaps, that there is no there is no written language to my art, there is no justification to the art, there is no academic essay. Although I've done a PhD, I found the process quite a traumatic one. So writing a, an academic essay is hard. I, you, I Before I was creating this stuff, I was creating art about the concept of value in the art market. And every piece was so complicated in the concepts I was trying to make, it needed a 2,000 word essay to explain it, <laughs> which then I never actually wanted to write the essay to explain the art. So it always kind of like stopped at that point. So I, I think the fact that this art I feel doesn't need it can be consumed without an exp explanation um, it's probably partly because of the dyslexia and I don't enjoy that written although I can do it I don't enjoy the, the putting a, a verbal language to the artworks but what you do do is you accompany it with a visual yeah. language instead so you tell the tale of yeah. it which is almost like an explanation but I guess it's a different process it is yeah and I think that's why videos work well for me um, on social media that, that I know I, I've gone, I go massively heavy into videos, but I think that's because it's not about documenting my process in a flat, still way. It's much more about telling the story of what I'm experiencing as I'm doing it. And I think that, that seeing and seeing how it's been made in the process and the ways my hands are moving and where I'm sitting and that type of thing, I, f I feel that it, it explains my journey a little bit more than, than just a photograph does. And do you find that because you do the stitched work, you do print adaptation, and you do the video narrative, more mm -hmm. of a word, there's a real um, variety of creativity. Do you think that helps prevent kind of creative burnout? You don't get tired of it because you're approaching it from different angles. Yeah, I think so. And I think sometimes you do get a bit bored of one thing and you can move on to something else. So if, if I can't say I get bored of sewing, but sitting for five hours sewing can feel quite exhausting. Your eyes are just focusing on one point. Um, your, your, your arms are kind of become, and hands become a bit more um, achy from doing hunched. it over and over and over and over your yeah your back becomes very hunched so then actually just taking a break and editing a video together you're still being creative you're still working on your creative practice but you're uh, having a, a change to your um 
way of achieving it. Mm, yeah, I find the same in as much as I think sometimes people expect that because I started out in the realm of cross stitch, I spend a lot of time cross stitching. And the irony is, I spend no time cross stitching <laughs> whatsoever. But then I do magazine production, or I do like, you know, writing emails, I think creativity, it evolves. And I feel like as long as you're spending time making something anew, yeah, then you can get your kick. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of that way, yeah, right? definitely. Um, where do you think you're headed? in the future have you got a goal in mind or is it just you still going with the flow? still going with the flow i think the the going back to creative burnout um i burn out when i overthink things because that stops me creating so if i overthink things about where, where i want to be and how i'm going to get there and these are the steps that i need to do to get there i end up burning out and stressing myself out about it whereas if i just sew see what happens from the sewing see how people interact from the sewing opportunities then come from that and it becomes much more um things things emerge in a much more organic and easy way i think whenever i force things um it never works as much so um no i'll sew and see where i end up i think to keep sewing i quite i i sort of take my hat off to you because it's you've gone through all this academic stuff and you've researched the whole artistic context and then you've gone, all right. Now. Yeah. <laughs> and then you sort of, and now you're like, now you can just get on and make your stuff and you don't need to worry about it too much because maybe you've front ended all the worry. In it yeah, I think, I think so. And I think when I was a, a few years ago, I was worried, worrying about like, well, how does this fit in with other artists and how does this fit into the history of art? And then I'm thinking, well, does that really matter? You're, if it feels, if you're, if what you're creating feels right, and what you're creating feels like a worthwhile pursuit, does it really matter how that fits into the context of history? And uh, to be honest, it's not my job to contextualise how I fit into the wider world. It's it. it I'm I'm just making. Yeah, I like it. I think that's a great way, great place to end. Yep. That sounds like that's like your dream soundbite. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to talk about? No, not particularly. Not particularly. It's uh, it's it's been a an, an intriguing journey. The the whole social media, sharing my art, making my art. It's I wouldn't have imagined that I would have got to this stage, and who knows where it'll go from here. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting though, and it's really. I think there's such. I think your work offers such simple pleasures, uh, despite its uh, yeah. complexity. Um, it's really rewarding. Where can people find you online? The easiest place is Instagram. My Instagram account is jpr underscore stitch, or my website, which is jprstitch.com. Um, yep, and uh, you have a mailing list as well, I so do. people can keep up with all the gossip via newsletter. Indeed. As all smart ones. <laughs> Great. Uh, thanks for having a needle exchange. My pleasure. Thanks for joining me on another needle exchange. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to email hello at needle.exchange. That's N-W-E-D-L dot exchange with any thoughts, comments, or feedback. And if you want to keep up with all the news, sign up to the Needle Exchange mailing list at bit.ly B-I-T, dot L-Y, forward slash needle exchange. See you next time.
for joining me on another needle exchange i hope you enjoyed the show i'd love to hear from you so feel free to email hello at needle.exchange that's n-w-e-d-l dot exchange with any thoughts comments or feedback and if you want to keep up with all the news sign up to the needle exchange mailing list at bit.ly bit.ly forward slash needle exchange see you next time <laughs>